As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash UNTCares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ollie at UNT podcast, produced by the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features conversations with UNT faculty, other subject matter experts, and lifelong learners in our community. To learn more about our courses and events, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli.unt.edu. Now let's join our host, Ali at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ali. I'm speaking with Dr. Rudy Ray Seward, Professor Emeritus in Sociology at UNT, a faculty member of Ali, a 1998 research fellow at the National University of Ireland in Galway, and a member of the Sociological Association of Ireland, and an expert on all things Irish. Of course, the Irish connection is by no means the extent of Dr. Seward's experiences as an educator. He was the recipient of the 1989 President's Council of Teaching Award at the University of North Texas, named top professor from Mortarboard in 1989, and Student Association Honor Professor in 1991. Hailing from Illinois, Dr. Seward received his Bachelor of Science degree from Northeast Missouri University, his MA and his PhD from Southern Illinois University. Dr. Seward's career includes also being a research fellow at Stockholm University in Stockholm. Dr. Seward has been listed as a noteworthy sociology educator by Marquis Who's Who. Welcome, Dr. Seward. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here and to talk with you. It's awesome to have you here. March was proclaimed as Irish American Heritage Month in 1991 by George H.W. Bush. So glad to have you here so that we can fully appreciate this day of celebration. St. Patrick's Day. As the expression goes, on St. Patrick's Day, Everybody is Irish. How did you become interested in the Irish culture and particularly in St. Patrick's Day? Well, I think it really goes back to growing up and in my mother's family, there was a lot of references to things Irish. So the potato famine seemed to come up as a topic. And the Irish temper, we'd talk about People had Irish tempers. And she had a brother who an uncle said he gave him the nickname Michael because he looked so so Irish, like an Irishman. But we didn't do any special celebrations. And I didn't really think maybe of myself as Irish. When I went to graduate school, you mentioned Southern Illinois University, and they had a very active exchange program. And so there were six Irish students 
had come to get graduate degrees all the way down to Carbondale, Illinois. And I think talking to them and getting to know them kind of resurrected those memories that, that I had in my interest. And so in 1971, I had the opportunity to, to go to Ireland, and, and I did. And confirmed my interest and in, in love for Ireland. And also, I think I was helped a bit by my wife's family also celebrated. In fact, they did more celebrating of St. Patrick's Day. So that's kind of some of my interest. And St. Patrick seems to be kind of the at the heart of some of the, the largest and greatest celebration and certainly a, uh, a person of great historical interest. The other, <laughs> the other thing, which I chuckle a little bit because I had heard through, and it was primarily through my mother's father's parents, her paternal grandparents, that I think a lot of these stories about Ireland came from, or at least were stimulated by. And uh, this story often told was that my mom's grandmother was the daughter of an Irishman who'd come over during the potato famine. It wasn't only her, but other people talked about that in the family. Well, it turned out it wasn't the case, that it was her grandmother's father was actually born in Pennsylvania, which last time I checked, that's not in Ireland. <laughs> But her father's mother was born in, in Ireland, supposedly on Christmas Day in uh, 1792, and came to the U.S. probably when she was about 16 years of age. So, and so that was intriguing. And in the process of researching that, found out a lot about some, more about the roots of the family. Can you tell us a wee bit of background on St. Patrick, the man himself? The man himself, there has been a lot of discussion and debate about St. Patrick. You can find different information from different sources, but there is a lot of consensus about him and his life and some of his achievements. He was born, some people are surprised to learn, not in Ireland, but in Roman Britain in the early part of the 5th century. When he was around 16 years of age, he was captured by Irish marauders who were taking people back to Ireland to sell into slavery, which is what happened to him. He was essentially uh, working as a shepherd there. And even though he'd grown up in a Christian family, he didn't really consider himself all that religious. But being essentially on his own, <laughs> And having lots of time, he started spending a lot of time praying during the day and during the night. Well, after six years, it was a vision that he received that said it was time to return home and that he needed to walk 200, he writes, 200 miles. In fact, one of the things I guess that suggests some consistency is that Patrick did leave two written records, considered to be the oldest surviving written records in Ireland. And he didn't give it a lot of details about birth and death, dates and things like that. But he did talk about being captured and then going into slavery, going back, making this walk 
and getting back to England and then moving on to France and living as a monk and eventually ordained as a priest and being called back to to Ireland. Another vision that he received was seeing faces of people and, and hearing voices saying, please come back and walk among us again. And so he felt that calling and went back. And it's not clear if he did this on his own or if he was actually appointed to do this. His missionary work went on for at least 30 years in Ireland, retired and died there, and is considered, even though there were already a few Christian communities in Ireland before he arrived who were thought to have come from England, so there was a lot of exchanging of people and settlement, setting up of settlements of English in Ireland and the Irish in England. But he went beyond those communities and, and is considered to have converted, in a sense, all of Ireland from paganism to Christianity. And I believe you said a wee bit, but I think I got carried away there. I'm sorry. Oh, that's perfect, because I have more to ask. What is it with the legend that he drove the snakes out of Ireland? Did he have anything to do with snakes? Oh, my gosh. Well, in a sense, he did. But all the evidence suggests, and there have been serious efforts to find out if there were ever any snakes in Ireland, and they've not found any evidence of that. But the story is that he, probably around the year uh, 461, went to a mountain that's now called Krog Patrick, or St. Patrick's Mountain, spent 40 days there, essentially a Lenten period, and during that time, gathered all the snakes in Ireland and banished them, and they went over a paraphrase and, and crashed and died, disappeared, whatever. It's really thought that it was the idea was that the pagans, the snakes, in a sense, represented the pagans. And so when he converted people from pagan religion to Christianity, that he was getting rid of the snakes. Okay, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. It is amazing to me to think that there are those writings of his, of St. Patrick's. I didn't realize that there were actually writings from him. Yes, and I think that this has been particularly the uh, more recent kind of scholarship has relied a great deal on those documents. And a lot of what we hear about St. Patrick at least has some basis in those documents. Essentially, one was a, well, I guess the Latin would be confessio or confession, and he kind of lays out his accomplishments, uh, the fact that he was called to, to be a converter and to convert the Irish from paganism. And also, there were charges leveled against him. Apparently, he ruffled uh, some feathers, particularly of some British bishops, and the stories told that there's no evidence of what this event was, that when he was a young man, he committed a sin that was considered to be, at least by him, unpardonable sin, and confided in a friend. And when the British bishops were upset with him, actually this friend of his, who had also become part of the church, apparently passed on this information, although we don't know, there's no record of what it was which is frustrating. There's, I guess, been some speculation. He was, in a sense, put on trial. 
And his mission was question. And so I guess the, consequently, he wrote this long document, the confession, that probably one of the best sources that we have. And an earlier letter that he wrote to a British warlord who was Christian, but was going to Ireland and capturing and selling into slavery some of the people that St. Patrick had converted to Christianity. And as I guess it's easy to imagine that he was very upset about that. And that he wrote, so he wrote this letter in a sense, uh, condemning them, of course. And it's thought at least that letter in a sense was upsetting to some people. And that's when he, this trial, he was brought to trial. There's no evidence that he ever went to participate in the trial, that maybe he just sent someone with his document, with his confession. Well, I'm sorry for him, for his troubles, but I am happy that he had an occasion to write the confession because now we have this information about him that we might never have had. So that's kind of good in that respect. Right. So, St. Patrick's Day. Yes, it's a celebration of his death date. And in fact, there seems to be a lot more of the strongest agreement, the greatest amount of agreement about that actually being his death day, March the 17th. The year, a lot of discussion. (laughs) But the date, and it's thought that the churches that he helped establish after his death, already in a sense, at that time in the early church, people who were admired in, in the bishops, the churches were often considered saints. As someone said, there's a lot of saints in Ireland, descended <laughs> from these you know, early churches. And so that day was already being celebrated after his death, but it really wasn't until about the seventh century that a couple of church biographers started writing in more detail about his miracles and uh, kind of role as a super converter and super kind of hero. And that's probably when they, that time or a little bit later, more substantial celebrations and recognition of that day. So by the ninth century, the Book of Armagh, which is kind of at the center of his ministry and ended up becoming the center of the churches in Ireland, said, you know, the the message was that you were supposed to devote three days of learning and about the accomplishments of St. Patrick and feasting and and really celebrating his life. But it probably wasn't in terms of what we think of St. Patrick Day, it probably wasn't until about the 17th century that that became a common kind of practice. So what's our fascination with St. Patrick's Day here in this country? Well, clearly not just here, but worldwide. (laughs) I think that the first thing I'm going to mention in some ways, I'm thinking, well, why would you mention migration, movement, people leaving Ireland? Ireland has a long history, and they're not the only nation or country that has this, but Going back again to those Irish marauders uh, who were going out and capturing people and eventually even and often setting up settlements in the areas that they more frequently went to. And so there's just this long history of migration. And what it leads to is the estimates are that 
around 90 million people worldwide, over 30 million in the United States, claim Irish ancestry. So I think one of the things is that they've taken their traditions and customs and respect for St. Patrick with them. And they've often set up organizations because in addition to moving to a lot of different places, they often set up Irish aid societies that help other people who are coming into a country and help them to establish themselves. Often again, St. Patrick was a major event. There were usually special dinners, even sometimes fundraisers, because again, they were trying to aid. And these kind of go back to the even societies that were in Ireland. Sometimes they were referred to as burial societies, where for a small fee, it would be kind of a, a social gathering, but you would put in so much money each week. And so when you died, you, there was money there to to cover funeral expenses. So these societies were set up in a lot of cities. New York and Boston were particularly were very active and set up these events. And I think they were at least very crucial in kind of the recognition and importance of St. Patrick's Day because eventually they started putting on more public events like parades. Why is it, since St. Patrick's color is true blue, that we wear green? I remember as a little girl, they used to say, if you didn't wear green on St. Patrick's Day, you got pinched. I hope that's still not the case. But why the green? Well, I do still hear that phrase. No, I don't go around trying to find people without green and pinch them on that day, but (laughs) I hear that. One of the things in, in my wife's family they talked about, I guess it was a variation on that from my grandmother, was that they would take you down to the courthouse in town and they would paint your derriere green if you didn't have green. So they'd provide you with some green. I'd rather be pinched. <laughs> and I never heard of that ever happening. And I've never heard anyone else, you know, say that outside of her family. So anyway. And I just always assume, you know, iron, green, the Emerald Isle, all these things green and St. Patrick, most portrayals of Patrick, images and so on, usually, there's usually quite a bit of green, although in some of them, often there's an undergarment that you can see, which is that dark kind of rich blue, royal blue, that was his original color associated with him. As best as I understand it, is that the emphasis on green really goes back to the Scots-Irish and the immigrants who came from the Presbyterians in particular that came from Scotland and some from Northern England and were settled in Northern Ireland as part of the plantation system where they were really trying to increase the English speaking and Protestant population in that area. And that was in the early uh, 1600s. In the late 1600s, the Parliament started passing a series of penal laws that discriminated against both Catholics and Presbyterians. More so, there were more restrictions on Catholics, but the end result, they were trying to get to convert people to join the Anglican Church, the Church of Ireland. But as a, as a result of this, 
There were a, a group founded in the late 1700s called the United Irishmen, of which the Ulster Presbyterians were a strong force and made up a lot of the membership, but it actually included Catholics as well. It was somewhat ecumenical, I guess you could say. And there was a rebellion in 1798, and they had chosen green, the color green, as their emblem and way to kind of identify other members and so on. That certainly played a role in emphasizing green. It doesn't hurt to the fact that, you know, Ireland is referred to as the Emerald Isle, and 40 shades of green from all, all of the rain, but it seems to have that kind of a, a political beginning. And then it, green took on a kind of a special meaning for people to wear green and the shamrock. And there was even a song that came out that kind of wrecked in the uh, 1800s called Wearing of the Green. Part of the line is there that they're uh, hanging people for a wearing of the green. It was sometimes, you know, very brave to wear that green because you uh, might run into a loyalist or someone who would take offense and, and so on. And I think just eventually green, just everything was green. The leprechauns originally were identified as wearing red clothing and not green, but you don't see any red leprechauns anymore. <laughs> anyway, so yes, I think just over time, the green became the color associated with Ireland. The listeners don't have an opportunity to see you, unfortunately, because you're wearing a beautiful shirt <laughs> covered with green shamrocks. I love it. What's the significance of the shamrock? The shamrock, the importance of it really goes way back in Ireland. It's covered, uh, you can just find all kinds of shamrocks, which is really a kind of clover. You can find them around here, different variations. Even the pagans saw the shamrock as an important symbol. It was a somewhat common practice in that, and St. Patrick followed and other missionaries, was to use kind of existing symbols and make them a part of a Christian tradition. So he used the shamrock as a way to explain the Trinity. This was a kind of common practice. So the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and also sometimes referred to as referring to faith, hope, and love. So it was considered an important symbol and also a way, I guess, part of his explanation of Christianity used the shamrock. Coming from outside of New York City, St. Patrick's Day was always a very, very big deal for us. The archbishop quite often waived the prohibition of eating meat when it fell on a Friday during Lent. And I gather that the New York City Parade is the world's oldest civilian parade and the biggest St. Patrick's Day parade in the world. Why parades? Why parades? Parades are very public events, get attention, present kind of images, usually positive images. Some of the things associated with parades maybe can be questioned, but often kind of political, became political events uh, in many large cities in New York and certainly Boston and Chicago is probably uh, where the largest parades were held. And so there were often political statements made about Ireland 
There were often politicians who wanted to be successful in running for office or staying in office. And uh, for a long time, and I think even somewhat today, you know, it was important to be a part of and seen at those parades. And you're quite right. New York has one of the biggest parades. And uh, going back to 1766 was kind of the first parade, although it essentially was Irish soldiers who were in the British Army in North America who held that original parade. And then I mentioned those Irish aid societies in 1848. Uh, they came together and decided to organize this large parade so that this year will be the 260th version of the New York City Parade. But due to the uh, pandemic, in fact, the parade was canceled last year, although several of the organizers got up early and paraded down Fifth Avenue with recorded bag type music and they had police escort. So they carried on this, the tradition, and this year that's being billed as a virtual parade. So there will be a parade. What a wonderful event. And I guess one advantage of it being a virtual parade is now people all over the world can enjoy it. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't remember any celebration that's worldwide like this. And it seems like... I think they even have St. Patrick's Day parades in China and Japan and Brazil and all over. It's incredible. And the fact that we dye our rivers green. I don't think there's any other holiday where we dye it. We don't dye it red or green for Christmas or for the holidays. (laughs) No, that's quite true. No, you're absolutely right. I've not found images in China, but I... Uh, Japan particularly has had large parades. It's just almost every major country. At some point, I was kind of making a list of countries where I had found large celebrations and you almost saw every case large parades. And it just got so long, it kind of became meaningless. So I think you're, abs- you know, you're absolutely right. And it is I celebrated more than any to the best of my knowledge, and other quite a few people make this claim, which doesn't automatically make it right, but that it is the most celebrated national day worldwide. And there's certainly a lot of support for that. Well, I think it might be easier to make your list of the countries that don't have a St. Patrick's Day <laughs> parade. Very good point. I think that's right. Oh, you mentioned dying of the River Green. That goes back to, in the 1960s, 1962, in the city of Chicago, the Pollution Control Department had sent out workers trying to find people or sources of pollution that was coming into the river. And they were using an orange dye. But when this orange dye was mixed with the water, it turned a very bright green. And that's really how it started in terms of dyeing the river green. Chicago was the first. And now that's done in rivers running through quite a few major cities around the world. 
And even at the White House, Michelle Obama apparently initiated, started the practice of adding green or orange powder or whatever to dye the water in the one of the major fountains around the White House. But uh, I know I've been in uh, Lithuania and Vilnius. They dye their river green there. And even Dublin started the practice. In some ways, a lot of the parades and celebrations are primarily were initiated and kind of started in North America and the United States, some really going back to the colonial period. So there's kind of a, lo- a long history there. Can you tell us what in the world is Padawackery? Well, it's a, a word I think that initiated really in the theater, apparently, in that plays that would present kind of a stereotypic and negative view of the Irish. The temper, the drinking, and those kind of issues, that was often referred to as patarachery. Then I think it's sometimes applied to parades have become, maybe take Dallas as an example. The parade often is kind of a, an anchor or the center observance, and then usually around it, there's a lot of other events. So in Dallas, they often uh, typically, now this year, the only thing that survived has been uh, the walk kind of run down Greenville Avenue. But there's often some sort of an activity like that in the morning. There's also even encouraging individuals to, you know, attend a church service, which traditionally was what was emphasized. And then the parade. And then in Dallas, there is a kind of a, well, a large block party in Greenville Avenue. And it's at those, you know, it's also kind of referred to sometimes as, you know, heathenistic and all this drinking and carousing and boisterousness and then wearing of a lot of plastic green ornaments. And, and <laughs> so I think it just kind of, it's kind of the, the negative aspects of the, of the uh, view of the Irish and also of the negative aspects and non-religious aspects of the celebrations that go on. One of the positive things about celebrating St. Patrick's Day is a kind of, it's often mentioned, you made a reference to this, of celebrations by not only people who are native Irish, but who have Irish ancestry, and a lot of of non-Irish who are at least think of themselves as Irish uh, at that time. And there is that still the, the positive, the kind of sense of unity that exists. And certainly in Ireland, there's a long history of kind of hoping and trying to work towards unity of the island as one nation. And it's several things related to St. Patrick's Day have contributed to that. One of the key ones was the, uh, the shamrock ceremony that started back in the 1950s and developed over time, supported by Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill, some people like George Mitchell. And, and they started working with individuals from Ireland. They would invite them over. The ceremony, the shamrock ceremony, is giving just a bowl of shamrocks to the president and by the prime minister from Ireland. And then they had a whole series of kind of gatherings around that time and eventually this contributed to the Good Friday Peace Agreement in 1998 
Because one of the things, and there's actually been books written about this, so it's hard to say in a few words, but basically they were bringing people from both Northern Ireland and from the Republic to the White House and people who wouldn't, because of their political beliefs, speak to one another in Ireland could talk openly in Washington, D.C. at these gatherings. And this contributed to that peace agreement, of which part of that peace agreement was that the Northern Ireland would have the right, if they want to, to have a referendum to join, to leave the UK and join the Republic. And Brexit has only added pressure to that, to that ideal. I appreciate you so much taking the time to explain this to me. It makes St. Patrick's Day much more meaningful, and I'll think about what you've said this day, this St. Patrick's Day. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I've enjoyed our conversation. This has been Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas, speaking with Rudy Ray Seward. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.